Good morning, everyone. Such beautiful songs we just sang. Proclaim wonderful truths. Beautiful truths today. Before I get started, I wanted to say um, that this Sunday is actually Reformation Sunday. Just wanted to point that out. Um, The commemoration of Luther's uh, nailing of the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Church is coming on Tuesday, on October 31st. And so this Sunday is every year called Reformation Sunday. And it's a great reminder for us to look back at church history, at those who have come before the great cloud of witnesses that we have, and the people who stood strong for biblical truth, such as Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zurich Zwingli. Um, so I'd challenge you this week to maybe do some researching and to go back and look at some of these things that they stood for, things like um, Scripture alone and the other solas, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, the tenets of our gospel that we preach today. And we exist today as a church in part due to these men and their um, stalwart strength and their boldness by the Spirit to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so it's a great day to be able to remember those men this morning. But today, um, it's not a history class. Today is um, looking at God's word in First John. So I'd, you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do. I hope um, I would ask you to turn in First John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. First John chapter 2. Verses 3 through 6. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's a Bible in front of you in the pew, or perhaps somebody next to you would share um, their Bible with you. And I would ask that you would stand in reading in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. The beloved disciple, John, writes these words to us. In this we know that we have known him if we are keeping his commandments. The one who says, I have known him and is not keeping his commandments is a liar. And in this one, the truth is not. But whoever keeps his word, truly in this one, the love of God has been completed. In this we know that we are in him. The one who says he remains in him ought to walk in the same way that that one walked. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please be seated? And would you pray with me this morning? Righteous Father, we heard from your word today that you have given us your spirit to lead us into all truth and to teach us all things concerning your Son. We ask this morning that the Spirit who indwells those who live by faith in Christ today in this room would be taught well for your glory and your honor that we might know you, that we might cherish you above all things that we might live by the confession that Christ is Lord today and this week, and that your name might be known among all nations for your glory 
we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Very often, the things that we see around us tell us about things that lie behind them, realities that are lying behind physical signs. So for instance, this morning, gray clouds and winds and the smell of rain before the rain came told us it's probably going to rain today, and it did. Or sometimes when I come home from school, I come back to our apartment in Cedarville, and if Ellie is home before I am, um, sometimes she is, or if we didn't drive together to school that day, I'll come up the stairs and I'll smell in the stairwell a really great smell. And I know, most likely, that there is a wonderful meal waiting for me when I get inside the apartment. Or, in a few days, the best time of year will come, in about three days, actually, where all the Halloween stuff will be torn down and every mall and Walmart in America will have Christmas stuff up. And you'll know that Christmas is coming sometime in the next two months. And it'll be great. <laughs> and we see certain things, and we know that certain realities lie behind them in some way, whether it is a wonderful meal, whether it is rain, or whether it's Christmas is on its way. And the question that we should ask ourselves as believers is how can we know if we are saved? How can we know if we're saved? This is a much broader question about assurance that John answers in the first four verses of his letter that we've already gone over. He told us that the foundation of our fellowship with God, the basis of our assurance, the place that we find that we know that we are for sure saved is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reality of the divine Son's coming in flesh and his incarnate work on the cross and his glorious resurrection and ascension. That is the basis of our assurance. But we of little faith, thankfully, have other resources that point us back to that gospel, that point us back to the foundation of our assurance. And so the question is then, is there anything that we can see right now that can help direct us to that source of assurance, that can bring us to that point of assurance that means we might know that we are saved? What can we look at to help us in our assurance of our salvation? This is a question that John answers in our text today. And the main idea of our text is be assured of salvation. Be assured of salvation by recognizing that your works come from God's work in the gospel. Be assured of your salvation by recognizing that your works that you do come from God's work in the gospel. This main idea can be seen in two main points today. They aren't. They kind of span all three verses. Um, both both points do. The first one is John's approach, and the second is John's admonition. First is John's approach, and the second is John's admonition. So first, we're going to start with John's approach. I want to start by leading in with context and John's approach as a whole to make sure that we're actually reading this text properly and not making skewed applications that might be dangerous for us as believers. So looking at the passage as a whole in context, what is John trying to accomplish here? So as we've seen in the book so far, John is using a lot of really strong language to say certain beautiful truths about the reality of the transformation in the believer's life. But it's very heavy. 
If we're not careful, some of this language like we saw last time, where if you say that you are having fellowship with God and you walk in darkness, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. And other verses like that that we saw in the opening verses of John, of 1 John. And if we're careful, we can read those verses, and those verses can be forgotten, and, and, and the meaning of them can be skewed. So it is important to lay some groundwork for this section by showing how John is both first, he's both pastoral, and he's purposeful. So First John is pastoral in his letter here. So my tendency is to read these texts, unfortunately, and say, why in the world are we still talking about all this really heavy, burdensome, almost, language about believers in the eternal state and their actions and how those things play in to how we think about the Christian life. It seems that I need to keep on examining myself over and over and over again, and that it's almost burdensome to think about the commands that we must follow, and if I'm to have this assurance that I'm saved. And maybe... You're like this, maybe you're like me, I've struggled with assurance in my past, and I think that honestly that is where some of that comes from. Or maybe if you even haven't, you still hear these things and you think the same thing. It's John calling me to sit here and question every single time I read his text, am I saved? Am I saved? Do I have these works? Oh, I sinned last week. Am I saved? But I'm here to tell you I think that is ludicrous. I think that's absolutely wrong. That's not what John is trying to get across here. And I have two main reasons for believing that. And the first one is that John is writing two believers. He's writing two believers. If you remember back in the beginning verses of 1 John, he's saying, I'm writing these things so that you might have fellowship with God and fellowship with us. And we talked about how that's not evangelistic purposes necessarily, but that's so that means he's proclaiming the gospel so that their continued fellowship with God, how they relate to God, and how they relate to one another might be continually shaped by what brought them into that fellowship to begin with, which is Jesus Christ. John also continuously writes inclusively, if we say, if we say, if we are keeping his commandments. He's including himself and these believers in his writing. This again is emphasized in 2.1, where he calls them my little children. This, weren't, this wasn't John's biological children that he was writing to. That's a, an idiom for believers in the Bible, my little children. And again in 2.7, where he calls them beloved, and that's another idiom in the Bible that's talking about those who are beloved by God, beloved. And I keep going through the whole book um, and keep on showing over and over and over again that John is writing to believers, but the most direct he ever is is in 2.12 through 14, where he says, I, he has this little poem, and he says, I write to you, um, little children, because your sins have been forgiven through his name. I write to you, fathers, because you know him from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. This, these are believers that he's talking to. So John is not writing to believers to make them question whether they are saved, because he already knows they are saved. He's writing to them because they are saved. So he's not going to sit there and question their salvation the entire time. Second, John is writing toward a specific context. He's writing toward a specific context. It seems that John is uh, writing to a people 
who are dealing with false teachers in their midst. In the latter parts of chapter 2, in verses 18 and 25, we see that there are certain antichrists, he calls them, who have gone out from this church and who have started preaching false teaching about the reality of the Incarnation, which is why he emphasizes it in chapter 1. And also that Jesus is not the Christ. He's saying these are the antichrists who are teaching that Jesus is not the Christ. And in 2.26, he caps it off by saying, I write these things to you concerning those who are deceiving you. And so these believers naturally have these church members, you could say, go out from them. And then they're teaching all this false gospel. And naturally they're confused. And they're being deceived by these people who are their friends, who were living among them. So John's not writing to these Christians to say, yeah, you're probably not saved. You need to check yourself. But he's writing to them to encourage them as they are dealing with these things, saying, look at what the gospel has done in your life. See how you are saved. John is not trying to question these believers' salvation. He's pastoral. He's not tyrannical. He has come with gentleness, care, and even stern warning against these false teachings, but not with the rod of discipline. He treats them as Christians, not as possible unbelievers. He's not interrogating them with these words, but he is encouraging them. As John says so clearly in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may have, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So 1 John is pastoral in his approach. Second, John is purposeful in his approach. He's purposeful. The question is, then, in light of what we just said, why does it matter to John if they know that they have known him, if they know that the love of God is completed in them, that they know that they are in him? Why does it matter? I think there's two main reasons for that, and it has to do with what John has been saying so far. First, a lack of this knowledge, or you could say a presence of doubt in one's salvation, does not serve the ends of John's writing. We just talked about how he is writing these people so that their fellowship with God might be, might be uh, strengthened, might be um, cultivated by the gospel. And if these people do not know that they are in fellowship with God, that obviously very much impedes that purpose. One's joy is not complete if they do not feel like they can know whether they are a Christian. One's fellowship with God and with others is distorted by that person's doubt regarding how they relate to God and how God relates to them. Maybe they don't see him as loving or as gracious or as father as they should. Second, in light of the previous section that we just got done with a couple weeks ago, John writes that God is light, remember? God is light. So you ought to live like it. Live confidently Christian lives, killing sin. And we know that we can be confident. Why? Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who has atoned for your sins once and for all, completely. So if you do not know that you've known him, what does that do to your confidence in walking in the Christian life? If you do not know that the sins, that your sins have been atoned for by Christ, 
then how will you view your sin each day? You'll go back almost functionally to what we talked about in Leviticus 16. You'll sin each day and you'll say, but I don't know about tomorrow. Are my sins atoned for? And so John comes in, he says, but this is how you can know that you've known him. That's why it's important. So John writes this because it's consistent with what he's been saying already. Our lack of assurance can be devastating to our confidence in killing sin and our enjoyment of our fellowship with God and others. Present assurance can be an encouragement for us to continue to kill sin, an encouragement for us to walk the Christian life, an encouragement to us to have overwhelming joy as we rest in the arms of our God, knowing that we are saved by him, knowing that we dwell secure. So as we approach this text, realize that John is not saying that we're supposed to look at our works and count our fruit in our basket and say, oh, I must be saved. Because our assurance is not grounded in our fruit in and of itself. Our assurance is grounded in the gospel. Our assurance is grounded in the realities that lie behind those fruit. The works are not our assurance. They are evidences of the reality of the gospel in our lives, which is the grounds of our assurance. I say all this because I know and I've seen and I've heard preached over and over again from texts like these in John really burdensome passage, really burdensome sermons. But you really need to check yourself and you need to sit down. And I do not want you to hear that today. John is not trying to club you. He's trying to encourage you. Know that today. So today we are not going to look at these passages and think, am I saved? We're going to look at them and just sit and meditate on the realities that we are assured of as believers. And that is a worthy thing to do today. And you can even put yourself in the shoes of these believers um, that John is talking to. What if people around here, many of you have been here for so many years, it's like a family around here, which is amazing, and you had people who maybe are like fathers in the faith to you, or brothers in the faith to you, that really are responsible for discipling you in many ways. And what if those same people just decided to leave and start teaching that Jesus is not the Christ, and that Jesus is not God, and that the gospel that you believe is false? What would that do to you? What would that do to your confidence in God? You would probably be questioning so many things. Is Jesus really God? Is this person right? If they don't believe that, then is that, even tr- is that even true for me? Am I really saved? What does it mean to be saved? How can I know that I am? All of these questions would arise in your heart. And John's saying, don't look at anything else except the gospel. And see how their lives are full of wickedness. And they're walking in the darkness. And look at how the gospel is real by the way it has transformed your life. And see that it is real. See that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Do not listen to these false teachers. Do not look at the work itself, but see the works and see that the gospel behind them has actually changed your life, that the gospel is real, that you are indeed saved. So, in light of John's approach, how are we supposed to be encouraged? 
And this is where we get into John's admonition. What specifically are we supposed to recognize about our lives? And what specific realities do those things assure us of? So John says, look at your works, look at how the gospel has changed your life, and see certain realities about the gospel and be assured of them. In each of these verses, we will see what we're supposed to recognize and then what realities we are to be assured of. So first, seeing obedience to Christ's commandments brings assurance that we know God in Christ. Seeing obedience to Christ's commandments brings assurance that we know God in Christ. John says, And in this we know that we have known him if we are keeping his commandments. So John comes off this really positive note in verses 1 and 2, as we talked about, this advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who has atoned eternally for sins. And he could have phrased this question, or this, this statement, if we are keeping his commandments, then we know that we have known him. But he fronts the knowing. He fronts the thing that he wants to emphasize. He puts it at the beginning. And he says, in this we know that we have known him. He's emphasizing, as we've already talked about, the assurance that he wants to portray and convey to these people to encourage them. And once again, this shows us that John is not trying to tell us that our assurance of our salvation is based on the amount of spiritual fruit that we have in our baskets. I keep on saying that because it is so vitally important not to do that. Because it's a fruitless endeavor. The fruit that we portray does not carry the weight of our souls and the need of its assurance. Only the gospel can do that. In honor of Reformation Sunday, here's the reformer John Calvin on, his, on this reality in 1 John. He says, The saints, when it is a question of the founding of their own salvation, without regard for works, turn their eyes to God's goodness. Not only do they betake themselves to it before all things as a beginning of blessedness, but they repose it. They repose in it as the fulfillment of this. So he's saying they look to God first for their assurance. But a conscience so founded, erected, and established is established also in the consideration of works, so far, that is, as these are testimonies of God dwelling and ruling in us. The works we have are testimonies to God's ruling in us, which points us to our ultimate ground of assurance, God himself, as seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first, John says that we are to recognize in this verse obedience to Christ's commandments. And John says, as we saw this morning in, 14, in John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, there's not like a special list of commands that we're supposed to follow. We're not looking back to the Old Testament law and thinking we have to follow all those. But, in general, this is talking about living in obedience to the things that Christ has called us to do. So think of some of the things that Christ himself commanded in his earthly life and ministry. John Piper has a book called All That Jesus Has Commanded, and it lists all the things that Jesus has commanded, very well named. It lists 50 things that Jesus commanded in his earthly life and ministry. And here are some of them. Repent and believe the gospel. Abide in me. Take up your cross and follow me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. 
Love your enemies. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Do this in remembrance of me. Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do those things, believer, which Christ says if you know him and you love him, you will do. Do these things sound like your life? Have you seen the desire in your heart to obey these commandments? Do you, even as I speak to you, hear those things and say, I want to do those things. I've seen myself do these things. John says this, this is evidence that you know God. And that is what we are assured of this morning, friends. If you see that you have desires in your heart and also actions in your life that point to an obedience to Christ's commands, then he says you are assured that you know God. John wants us to know that we know God because it is the essence of eternal life. John says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you know, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God is what it means to be saved. Knowing God is the essence of eternal life. It's what it means to participate in it. In 2 Peter 1-2, Peter says that grace and peace from God are multiplied to us where? In the knowledge of Him. In one verse later, he says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of Him who called us into His own glory and excellence. In other words, you cannot receive the blessings of the gospel if you do not know God. And John says, exactly But be assured that you know him. Be assured that all the blessings of the gospel are made available to you through this knowledge of God. To be a Christian is not to know simply about God, but it is to know him personally and intimately, only as a son can. This is what John has been getting at from the beginning. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The type of knowledge, a saving knowledge, is a fellowship kind of knowledge the knowledge only a son could have of his father. He always knows him. He knows him personally. He knows his character. He knows his love for him. He knows his ways. When Ellie and I were going through premarital counseling, we read a lot of books about marriage, like a lot of books. Um, Because I had counseling with Mike and Diana, so you guys know about that. We were reading all what the Bible has to say about marriage. We were kind of forming a, almost a theology of marriage. I got to say, at that point in time, I knew so much about marriage. If you ask me, I was like, I know so much about marriage. Trust me. You guys know where I'm going with this, don't you? <laughs> I knew a lot about marriage, but I didn't know it experientially. I didn't know what it was like personally. We learned that after marriage, after getting married... Um, that putting that theology into practice is a whole different ballgame. Because that knowledge, the different types of knowledge, are categorically different. Knowing about something is not the same as knowing something. So anyone can get a theology book and read them for 40 years and know a lot about God, know all the terminology, know all the right answers. But there is a difference between knowing God experientially, personally, as Father. 
that you know his covenant love for you, that you know his faithfulness to you, that you sing the songs that we sang with joy, because you say, now and ever I confess Christ my hope in life and death, because you know him, because you know him. And if knowing God is this beautiful reality, this all-satisfying knowledge of the eternal God, and that it is that important, it is the most important thing in the whole universe, then how important then is knowing that you know him? Right? You see that logic there? I would say the most important thing in the world is that you would know God rightly and spend eternity with him. And therefore, knowing that you know him, being assured that you know him, is so vitally important to you. How terrible would it be to not know that we have indeed known him and have entered into the eternal life that is promised even now, to wake up every day not knowing. John says exactly. And he says to these believers, and he says to us, don't you see the evidence of God's work in your life even now? Look at the gospel in in scripture and see it. See the realities of Christ. But God knows our weak faith. And he says, but also look at what I've done in you. Isn't that, real? Isn't that proof enough of the gospel that you know him? Notice that you are a sinner, that you cannot say that you have not sinned, as John says. And therefore that anything good you see in you could not have come from you. It can only have come from God in the gospel. Be assured that you know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent by seeing the gospel through its work of obedience in your life. Second, John says in verses 4 and 5 that seeing submission to Christ's word brings assurance that we are loved by God in Christ. He says, The one who says, I have known him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And in this one, the truth is not. But whoever keeps his word, truly in this one, the love of God has been completed. So we recognize submission to Christ's word, obedience to the word of God. Simply put, is scripture the leading authority in your life? Does scripture norm and inform your actions and your decisions? When something is contrary to scripture, do you attempt to avoid it? Or do you just do it anyways? When you read something in Scripture, do you desire to follow it? And do you attempt to follow it? Are you living in submission to the Word of God? John says, if so, rejoice today. Because you know, not only that you have known God, but that His love is completed in you. So let's think about that. What we are assured of today, that God's love is perfected in us. God's love being perfected in us means that our submission and obedience to God's word shows a love for him that is perfect. If you see obedience, if you see submission, and you say, I know that I have loved him. But the problem is is that um, how do we have this love for God? (laughs) 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. As 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us so that we should be called sons of God, and so we are. God gives his love to us in Christ, and we are made his sons. 
His love is not a feeling. His love is not an emotion. His love is an action of implanting in you his spirit to apply the work of Christ to your life. It is the sending of his son. That is his love for you. John 14, 23 explains this further. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And these verses are sandwiched today, if you notice this morning, by the sending of the Spirit. Friends, for us to be loved by God is to be is shown in the death of Christ, and it is given in the sending of the Spirit into our hearts. And that work in Christ, friends, as Christ on the cross, is finished. It is completed. It cannot be taken away from you. So John says, be assured of this, that God's love has been completed in you. It cannot be taken away. It's a work that is completed and done. It is finished. It is complete. Often we might struggle with assurance because we do not know if the love we have for God is enough. Maybe I don't love God enough. Do I, is, is my love enough to be saved? Is what John is saying about me in John 14, is that, is that me? Do I have that kind of love for God? But the love of God is a love complete, seen in the finished work of Christ that is sealed in us by his Spirit. If you have a love for God this morning, friends, you are saved. Because, not, because your love is so great, because the love of God is a complete love. Love, a completed action given to us by giving of himself. What a beautiful truth that is for us to be assured of today. Be assured of that. Finally, in verse 6, seeing conformity to Christ's life brings assurance that we are united to God in Christ. Seeing conformity to Christ's life brings assurance that we are united to God in Christ. He says to close in verse 6, End of verse 5. In this we know that we have known him. In this we know that we are in him. The one who says that he remains in him ought to walk in the same way that that one walked. So John says that we can rest assured when we recognize that we walk in the same way that Christ walked. And the question would be, how did Christ walk? I came up with six, four ways actually, four ways. He walked to purposely bring us into fellowship with God. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He walked for our ultimate joy in God. John 15.11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Also, third, he walked in the light. He walked perfectly without sin because he himself is the light who has come into the world. He had no sin. Jesus walked purposely to bring us into fellowship with God. He walked for our ultimate joy in God. He walked in the light. And fourth, he walked in love. Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So how did Christ walk? He walked for the purpose of our fellowship with God. He walked for the purpose of our joy in God. He walked without sin perfectly. And he walked in a sacrificial love. If our lives look like Christ, 
then we should see the desires for other people to come to God. We should see joy in God. We should see a life that walks in the light and is not riddled with sin uncontrollably, unrepentantly. We should see lives of selfless, sacrificial love for the sake of others and their joy in God. Every Christ-like action, every evidence of our conformity to Christ proclaims the fact that we are united to him. None of us could be like Christ, could walk in his ways, could do the things that he has done if we are not united to him. And so that is what we are assured of this morning. We are assured of our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. This mystery of the union that we have with Jesus Christ by the Spirit is the, is the avenue through which all eternal blessings flow. It is how we know God, by being sons. How are we sons? By being united to the Son. It brings forgiveness of sins, justification, sanctification, and eventually glorification in God. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is famous for talking about this. You say, how? Union with Christ? I haven't seen that word before. Because all things, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we see this in Christ, in him, at all times throughout Ephesians. All of the things, salvation, predestination, election, redemption, forgiveness of sins, the giving of his spirit as a down payment for our, our salvation, Paul says all happens. Why? Because we are in Christ. Because we are united to him. Because we are seen as sons by the Father. The Father looks at us and sees Christ because we are in Christ, united to him. Fellowship with God, joy in God, the ability to walk in the light are all possible only because the grace of God in his work in uniting us to his Son by his Spirit. And this is why we will one day reign with him. Many of us hear that and we go, how is that possible? How could we possibly reign with Christ? Because we are united to him. So if he reigns, we will also reign. All the inheritance that he possesses because of his work, we also get because of God's grace. And John says, be assured of this reality today. Be assured that you are united to the Son today. That is vitally important. I know that many of us probably don't wake up every morning and think, I'm united to the Son today. But I think we should. Because John says, this is how you can know that you're in Him. This is how you can know the one who has walked in perfect obedience in his human life now helps us walk in obedience to God. He who is the holy God of the universe in human flesh now makes us holy so that we might walk in his holiness. He who loved us perfectly now teaches us to love rightly. We now live as he did because our identity is now tied up in him, is found in him. We now know the Father as Father because we are now sons in Him. We now know how to show compassion to others because we are united to the One who has shown perfect compassion and peace to us. We know how to give patience to others because we have been shown perfect patience by Christ. And we are united to Him. 
All of these things are true, firm, and will never change in Christ. Salvation itself is guaranteed for you, believer, because of your union with him. Be assured today of this truth that you, believer, are saved, meaning that you are united to Christ. Not because of your own ability are you saved, but because of the indestructible life of the one to whom you are united to. Be assured today, believer. Keep confidently growing in the knowledge of God and in the love of God and in your continued conformity to Christ. Let assurance fuel you. Let the reality that you know all these things, you know the realities that we are assured of, that you have known God, that through that knowledge you have received all things that pertain to life and godliness, that you are loved by God, that his love is completed in you, that it can never be taken away. It's not still in progress. It is completed. Be assured that you are united to him. And look, John says, look at the actions that God has worked in you and see the gospel in them and be assured of those things. So first point of application I want to say today is that we should find evidences of God's grace in your life and in others' lives. Find evidences of God's grace in your life and in others' lives. This is for your joy, personally. So find evidences of grace in your life so that you might have joy in God. There is no joy in doubt. Doubt sucks you of life and of joy. Assurance is a joyful thing. Look at your lives today and see how God has worked in your life and rejoice, rejoice. And also, we should do this in others' lives as well. And think about John. He's writing, he's writing all these things for our fellowship with one another, right? For the cultivation of our fellowship with one another in the gospel. And think about the kind of encouragement it would be if we walked up to one another and said, Brother, I just want to tell you that what you did the other day with this other brother, that was so Christ-like. That really showed the work of the gospel in your life. I would imagine that brother's probably going to walk away going, Wow, I'm really encouraged. What about sister... The way that you handled that situation the other day, it just really showed the patience that Christ shows others, that Christ has shown us. Imagine the encouragement that we can bring, that we can remind our brothers and sisters of the assurance that they have in Christ as well. Let us take our eyes off of ourselves long enough to notice the evidence of God's grace in one another's lives, to love them well in that way. Another point of application I want to bring out is that I think John's writing this, or it could be written, to maybe four different kinds of people. Four different kinds of people. First, if you are an unbeliever, are you noticing that as we talk today that you have no desire at all, zero, to obey the Lord? That you have no evidence of submission to his word in your life? That you have none at all evidence of God's grace? Are you looking at your life and you're saying, wow, I am not any of this at all, zero? Then I would ask you to repent of your sins and believe the gospel and be saved and participate in the wonderful realities that we have meditated on today, union with Christ, knowing God forever, forever. 
Second, the inattentive believer. This text, while it is not supposed to be super weighty for believers, does carry the assumption that believers are changed by the gospel and that their lives do merit that, do show that. And so maybe today you have been, you're a believer and you have been like luster, been coasting, and sin has been killing you. Maybe today this text is calling you to wake up and realize that your life is not matching your profession and you really need to get things straight. Third, this is also written to the believer, the everyday believer. Maybe you struggle with assurance and you're actually thriving um, and you're actually thriving as a Christian who recognizes God's work in your life, but you're unsure that you're saved, you feel like you have doubts. And this is a way for you to look at those things that you notice in your own life or that other people have pointed out in your own life, and you can be assured. You can be assured. And lastly, and I think most pointedly, the audience that John is writing to is the terrified believer. The terrified believer. This, I would contend, is the audience that John is talking to, is the believer who does not know if he can be assured of his salvation. Maybe it's because someone close to you has walked away from the faith, as these believers have. Or maybe it's because you hear the different attacks on Christianity from around the world. And you hear all of the, the, the things about how we are just a bunch of lunatics, basically. And that we are crazy that we believe in this 2,000-year-old book. They undermine the reality of your transformation in Christ. Perhaps you see the existence of sin in your life. And even though there is genuine fruit in your life, your sin often takes center stage in your mind. And you struggle with a text like this because you see the sin so evidently in your life and you wonder, does that mean that I'm not saved? You are afraid that maybe you aren't even a Christian because of these things. You are fearful that you won't enjoy eternity with God. The first thing I would say, the fact that you care so much probably shows that you are a Christian because the unbeliever would not care if they did not know God. Second thing I would say, John's message to us today, terrified believer, is that no matter what others have done, no matter what false teachers say about us, no matter what others might say about you, no matter how you might feel about the fruit that is in your basket, believer, the gospel has changed your life. And that is never going to be taken away from you. Ever. You can today know, know and be assured that you have known Christ, that God's love has been completed in you, that you are in Christ, united to him. You can be assured that you are saved. So be assured of of that reality and have faith in it. Have faith in the gospel. J.C. Ryle said this regarding assurance. I think it really encompasses all of what John is saying today. I doubt not some true Christians who read this address will think their evidence of sonship is too small to be good and will write bitter things against themselves. So you look around, you see your works, and you see things that believers do in your life, and you think that's too small. You write bitter things against yourself. John, and uh, J.C. Rawls says, let me try to cheer them. Who gave you the feelings you possess? Who made you hate sin? Who made you love Christ? Who made you long and labor to be holy? Whence did these feelings come? 
Did they come from nature? There are no such products in natural man's heart. Did they come from the devil? He would fain stifle such feelings altogether. Cheer up. Take courage. Fear not. Neither be cast down. Press forward and go on. There is hope for you after all. Strive. Labor. Seek. Ask. Knock. Follow on. You shall yet see that you are sons of God. Find the areas of your life where you are faithful and where you show a desire to be faithful. Find others around you that will attest to these things. See these things as evidences of God's grace that point you to the gospel where you find assurance of your salvation and confidence to press on. I'm going to leave you with the same admonition. Cheer up. Take courage. Fear not, neither be cast down. Press forward. Go on. There is hope for you after all. Our hope springs eternal, as we sang today. Strive, labor, seek, ask, knock, follow on. You shall yet see that you today, believers, my family, are sons of God. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you have given us this text so that we might know that we have eternal life, that we might know that you are our God, that you have saved us, that you have loved us, that you have united us to your Son, that we might know you and live in eternal life. Father, I pray that nothing I said today would serve as a stumbling block for any of these. But Father, that they would be encouraged by your Spirit to see the things that you have done in their lives, to see the evidences of your grace in them, and that they would see the gospel and the power of the gospel and the power of the cross that has produced those things in them. And they would see Christ, see his grace towards them, and that in looking at him, they would be assured that they know him. Oh, Father, I pray to this end. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.